We are pressing ahead in our series on uh, the book of Colossians, Christ Above All, Preeminent in All Things. It's a book that, that presents Jesus Christ as King and Lord in creation, the firstborn of all things, the image of the Father. In, uh, in this passage, as we are pressing ahead into verses 12 to 14 of chapter 1, just a few verses... Uh, as we press ahead into really what is the centerpiece of the book in 15 to 23, this uh, image of Christ in all of his glory. Uh, this week we talk about him in his office as king and what it means that, uh, that we ourselves have become part of his kingdom. So if you are uh, able, go ahead and find Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 to 14. He's finishing his prayer that we looked at last week after saying that we should be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning and the chance to gather as your people. We have gathered to you. We come to sit at your feet and to learn of you. Would you speak this word into our hearts and into our lives with fresh power? Would you draw us into your kingdom in the fullness of our lives? Would you help us to lift our eyes, to see Jesus enthroned, as king over the nations, Lord over the earth, building his church, advancing his kingdom, and drawing all men to himself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark 1.15, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he enters onto the public stage and begins to preach and begins to present his message. As his ministry begins, he comes proclaiming the good news. But interestingly, when he begins to speak, he speaks of it this way, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right, so for Jesus, as he comes on the stage, the The essence of the gospel, the good news, which is simply what the gospel means, the essence of the good news is that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It is even among us. And it's shown up in the person of the king. And is what we see is that the kingdom of centered then in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. It is no longer conceived of in terms of geography. And at one time in the Old Testament, there was the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God ruled through his vice regents and the kings in Israel in that little piece of land, that little tiny country that was over there, conceived of in their minds as the kingdom of God on earth, where God reigned through his kings and through his word and through his prophets. But as Jesus shows up on the scene, he introduces a concept of the kingdom that is no longer tied to geography. It is no longer to be found in a certain point on a map. You cannot enter it by traveling there. You can't cross its border geographically and walk into it. It's just not that kind of a kingdom. He introduces a new kingdom. 
And he says to enter into this kingdom, the kingdom of a beloved son, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent means to turn, to turn away from where you were going, turning away from what you were doing, turning away from what you were believing. Turn, repent, and believe the good news that the kingdom has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's no longer, this kingdom no longer a matter of future prophecy, but it's a matter of present reality and a matter of gospel preaching. It's, it's part of the message. It was for Jesus as he comes to and present himself to the world and to offer himself to the eyes of faith to repent and believe in me, the king. And so part of his and at the center of his gospel message is this kingdom that has come. In Romans 14, Paul speaking of the kingdom says that the kingdom of God it's not a matter of eating and drinking. Some people were, were reducing the kingdom down to certain behaviors, certain things you did or didn't do, which we have a tendency to do in the past generations. It's not too far back. And to reduce the kingdom to what we do or what we don't do in these very small and minute areas. And he says it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, the presence of of God in his people, by his spirit, bringing and making present the kingdom in its righteousness, in its joy, and its peace, its riches. There's a present reality in the lives of his people. Whoever thus serves Christ, he says, is acceptable to God and approved by men. The essence of the kingdom then is serving Christ the king. Whoever thus serves Christ. And so the essence of the kingdom is serving the king in righteousness and joy and peace in the presence of the gifts of his spirit. And Paul sees this present reality of the kingdom as a cause for worship. So as he writes to the church, and last week as we have been looking through his prayers, his gratitude for the church and what God is doing and praying then the kingdom into the lives of God's people, that they would live lives that are worthy of the kingdom, pleasing to him, ready for every good work. He prays the kingdom in. As he closes it out, he goes from talking about the, the conduct of those in the kingdom to giving thanks and praise and worship for what God has done in bringing us into his kingdom. Giving thanks to the Father. Because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he has delivered us out of the dominion of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It says that we are to give thanks because the father has qualified us to share in this inheritance. In this kingdom. To qualify for something is to meet the standard. We were just told a few minutes ago that at least one ministry here in the church you have to qualify for, right? So I thought that was very helpful. You have to qualify. You have to meet a certain standard in order to be a part of it. And, and there is a standard. There is, some, there is a way that you have to be qualified to participate in God's kingdom. And so often we ask that question, you know, the day you die and stand before the Lord and, and, and that happens. And he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? In other words, what qualifies you for heaven? And how we answer that question is very revealing to what's going on in our souls and about where we have put our trust and our faith. 
What is it that qualifies us to share in that inheritance? See, the problem is we don't meet the standard. We have fallen short. The Bible is so very clear on this note from beginning to end, Old Testament and New, and running through every book of the New Testament and every book of the Bible is this idea that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of the glory of who He is and the glory of His kingdom. We have not qualified. We are no longer qualified as a people to enter into this inheritance. People ask or asked how, how they plan to qualify, and this is one of the things that's so difficult for people to wrap their mind around if they're, not, if they're not biblically, in a sense, educated, if they're not steeped in the thinking, the biblical worldview here, they, they have trouble wrapping their minds around the idea that they may not qualify. And if you ask people who are, you know, the general public out there, and I've done it before on the beaches of, of Florida, we would go down to evangelism projects during, you know, beach weeks and, you know, spring breaks, and uh, it's part of InterVarsity, and sometimes Crusade would do the same kind of things, and we'd go to the beach during spring break, but not to party, but to share Christ with those who are there partying. So we would walk the beaches, and you would be surprised how often you ask the question, when you stand before God on that day, what will you say? You know, if he said, why should I let you in? And their answer is, I'll be, I'm qualified. More often than not, that's the answer in the world is I'm qualified. I, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't killed anybody, you know. I haven't, you know, I'm not perfect or anything, but I'm, you know, on the scales, I'm, 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 I think that he'll accept me. I think, that I'll quali- I think that I'll qualify is their simple answer is I've been good enough. But the scripture says over and over for all through that we don't qualify. We cannot qualify. And if we stand on that day and say, God, I qualify, we are disqualified in our answer. And what it says here is that give thanks to the Father who qualifies us. There, there is a way to be qualified on that day for this inheritance, but it is not of our own doing. Only God can qualify us. And how does he do it? Well, he tells us, and he does it in verse 14. And he says, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. He says, in Christ, we can be redeemed and forgiven. And only then do we qualify. Redeemed and forgiven, right? And he says, in Christ, that when he says, in whom, he's talking about Christ, the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. And so the beloved, it is in the beloved Son, in Christ, that we are qualified. In other words, Jesus himself does the work. We're not qualified in ourselves. It doesn't say in, 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 in any way in us we somehow have, have this redemption or that we get forgiven. He says, in Him, in the Beloved Son, we have a redemption. That it happens in Christ. That He does for us what we cannot and have not done for ourselves. Which is to get ourselves qualified. To be stand justified before the Father on that day. There's nothing we can do to qualify ourselves. And this is so hard. The first thing that we must do. So we're like, you know, you're going to join AA. The first thing you have to do is admit that I'm an alcoholic. 
and my life is out of my control, and I cannot save myself. That's the first thing. There are a lot of, a lot of the, the men, actually, the men who founded AA uh, were based it, they were Christians, and they based it on Christian principles. It's often done in very secular ways. I've seen it done in very Christian ways. But there is it there. And what you're saying is the very first thing you need to do is get on your knees and admit you can't do it. And to, and to surrender yourself to a higher power which for them is going to be to God. And this is the way of the kingdom. This is it. The first thing to do is to admit we're not qualified and to bow the knee to the king. We need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to be redeemed, redemption and forgiveness. Redemption, it says, in whom we have this redemption. To redeem something is to pay a debt. That's all it means is that your debt, to be, if you've been redeemed, your debt has been paid. And so to redeem from slavery historically is going to be that there's a certain price laid on the value of the person who is enslaved and you could redeem them out of their slavery by paying the price, the cost for that person to release them, to set them free from their bondage is to redeem them. This is another difficult thing for us to wrap our mind around. These days, it's difficult to convince people that they have a debt that needs to be paid. A debt of sin, a debt of guilt before God, that they're not right with God. That they have fallen short of His glory and fallen short of qualifying and convincing folks that we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves because our sin, our guilt has made us debtors to God's justice. There's a debt to be paid. All the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory and the wages of sin is death. Who's going to pay the wage, the debt to justice for our sin? Jesus redeems us by paying the debt we owe. That's the gospel. That's uh, the great part of what we preach that Jesus did for us on the cross, what we could not do for ourselves, that he paid our debt in his own body by taking the penalty of our sin on himself so that we don't have to pay that penalty. Now you think of it as, as um, you know, another image of the whole redeeming something back as if something in a pawn shop. It's just closer to home, right? But if you pawn something, you can't. It's now, in a sense, in bondage. It now belongs to the shop. You can't get it out of the shop until you pay the price to redeem it. And you go and you redeem something, you know, so set it free to bring it back out into circulation. The price to be paid to release it. And what is the price that has to be paid? In Ephesians 1.7, which has almost this exact same verse in it, but it adds one thought. In Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him in whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Right? So we have the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins, but he tells us the price, that it's through his blood. And in Scripture, the idea of the blood, that, and in, the, in, in old cultures, you know that when the blood runs out, so does the life go with it. It's the life blood. So when it says, through his blood that we have forgiveness, that is through the giving of his life, that he gave his life for yours. If the wages of sin is death, and he gave his life, paid the wages, paid the debt, paid the price, 
to redeem us that our debt might be forgiven. He died for us to deliver us, to set us free. Through, and then we have, he says, the redemption, which is the forgiveness of our sins. See, when the debt is paid, it's canceled. We often use that you, to forgive a debt. Right? When the debt is paid, it is canceled. It is forgiven. There's no more that is owed. No more that can or should be paid. It has been removed. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. There's no more condemnation. No more sin and guilt. The wages of our sin and our guilt is death. Condemnation. But for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why it says in whom we have this redemption. And for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says there is no more condemnation. The debt has been paid. It's been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And what that means is they are so far separated that the never the twain shall meet. Your sins have been separated from you. In other words, it, once the debt is paid, it never needs to be paid again. The debt can never be demanded from you because he's paid it. It would be unjust to demand the same payment twice. Which is why in, Ro- in, in, in 1 John 1, when he prays and he says, it, um, you know, uh, 1 John 1, which I know by heart, which says uh, that if we... If we confess our sins, he is faithful, but he's not only faithful to forgive our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. When we confess our sins and and we claim Christ as our Redeemer and, and the debt has been paid, when we confess our sins, he's not only faithful to do it, he is just to do it. It is right for him to do it because it has been paid. The debt is forgiven and you cannot pay it again. He cannot ever demand it of you. So when you stand before him on that day and he says... Why should I live? What qualifies you? And you say, I have a redeemer, and my debt is paid. He would say, that's right. I don't think it's going to quite go like that, but just for purposes of, of illustration, our sin was laid on him, and so it will never be laid on you. It will never be laid to your charge because it was laid to his charge. And so you are qualified, he says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you through the redemption and forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus, has qualified you to share, he says, in this inheritance in light. The inheritance, and the inheritance here, the word is really that it would be your lot, your portion. You know, my lot in life. And he says, your, your lot will be, your portion will be an inheritance in, with the saints in light. God is light. His kingdom then is a kingdom of light. Right? The Bible says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the God who is light and in any inheritance that has God in your future is, is an inheritance in light. And it's where the saints then abide, not in darkness, but in, in and with the God who is light. An eternal destiny with God is is a destiny in in light. And so separation from God and a destiny of separation from God is a a destiny of darkness. 
And Jesus says this in so many ways as he calls people to put their faith in there, to turn and to believe and to trust in the message that Jesus is the king and you can enter into his kingdom and this inheritance in the saints. As Jesus offers this, he often gives both sides of it. Jesus was always bold. He was bold to invite and to call you to faith, but he always told you the other side of that coin. And so in Matthew 25, in the sheep and the goats, it says that he will cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That there is an outer darkness. There is, a, there is a destiny for light, he says, and there is a destiny for darkness. And he says to be and to share in the inheritance of light, you must be qualified by the Father through the work of the Son, ultimately applied by His Spirit. And it delivers us from this outer darkness, the destiny of darkness, which is the language that he uses here, not only the inheritance in the saints in light, but he says because he's delivered us, verse 13, He's delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. That this this transference has taken place. When he uses the word he's delivered us, in the Greek it's 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 a colorful word and it means to deliver, to rescue, but it has this imagery of of snatching. To snatch something out like, you know, uh, you know, the building is on fire and there's somebody's holding the child out the window and, you know, and somebody snatches them. You know, you snatch them from, from danger. You, you pull them out or, you know, there's a speeding bus and Ben is standing in the road looking the other way and to, and to snatch him out of the, out of the path of the, of the bus kind of thing. And that's the imagery that he, that he uses here that you have been delivered from the, the power, the dominion of darkness. You've been snatched out from under its power and destiny and transferred to a place of safety and life and light. And he says he's snatching this deliverance. He uses the past definitive, it's a past action, a definitive act of God that has already been done. He has qualified you, past tense. He has delivered us. He has snatched us from the jaws of death, right? From the power of darkness. When we turn and believe in the finished work of Christ and what Jesus has done, when we turn and believe in in Jesus and what he did, he did for me, he says, and we are completely redeemed. Our debt is completely paid and completely forgiven. It's already done. Consider yourself delivered, snatched, transferred. You have a new standing and a new destiny. And he calls it the dominion of darkness. Dominion. Dominion is to to have power over something, to have dominion over something, to have power over it, to reign over it, to rule over it. This is another thing we struggle with. 1 John 5.19, just one of the places that it clearly says it, and we know it's true from all of Scripture, says we know that we are from God, that is those who have turned and put their faith in the, in the King and been delivered from the power of darkness to the power in the inheritance in light. We know that we are from God in <clears throat> the life and the light that He has given us, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. <clears throat> this is a difficult concept for those who are in the world, for those who stand on the outside. 
Because darkness it has a way of hiding itself, of deceiving, it's self-deceiving. And so those in the world and where there is darkness and there is a destiny of darkness, it is, it is a difficult thing, a hard thing for the world to wrap its mind around the idea of a moral and spiritual darkness that is separating from God. And that apart from Christ and this deliverance and transference, the whole world says abides under the power, the dominion of darkness, of the evil one. And yet after thousands of years of human history, looking at the brutality through the ages in human nature that has not changed, we've gotten sophisticated and we've gotten in various ways that we show forth our nature, but our nature has not changed. We see the brokenness of the human condition We see our inability to save ourselves, to qualify ourselves, to do what only God can do. But this is Jesus' opinion, the the, the same as Jesus comes and as he shares his opinion on things, um, right? He sheds light on things, but he is the way and the truth and the life. And if light and life are in Jesus, and he sheds light on things by telling us the truth about them naming them, exposing them, right after he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what I mean by Jesus always gives you both sides. He says that God so loved the world, 1 John 3, 16, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe, turn and believe, trust in him, will not perish under the darkness and its destiny, but would have everlasting life in an inheritance of light. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, this is the judgment. This is my judgment, is the one who is sent into the world. God so loved the world he gave and sent his only begotten son. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Jesus is the light that has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light. This is his verdict, the way Jesus sees the world. He is the light of the world. And his experience and his judgment on the world is that The world loves darkness. It abides under this power. It needs to be delivered and not perish by trusting in the Son. Darkness, ignorance, rebellion, disobedience, right? Ignoring God and doing what we want to do. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. And they think of darkness in the grand scheme, and I don't live in... But if you think of darkness as simply ignoring God and doing what you want to do, Darkness pervades the whole earth. The ignorance of God, the disobedience to his word and his ways, who he is, a rebellion against the very fabric of the way things were made. Under this darkness we all live until we bow the knee to King Jesus. And so he says we were transferred from underneath the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's the same idea that was used like in the Old Testament when when Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, that a great portion of the Israelite population was gathered up and taken into exile. They were removed, transferred into Assyria and Babylon. They They were brought under, they were taken out of their country and they were taken to their conquering countries. This is the same thing in reverse, where they had been transferred under a new power and a new dominion, a new kingdom, and this is in reverse. But it's that same idea, there's transference under a new 
government and a new power, a new place to live. The Father has given the kingdom to the Son that He loves. And now He gives it to everyone who loves the Son. And that is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came to preach. The kingdom that was in Himself. The Father gave the kingdom to the Son He loves. And now He will give the kingdom to all who love the Son. And so will be delivered and transferred to everyone who bows the knee and comes under the Lordship of the King, the rightful King, the Lord and Creator of all things. It's a real and present and spiritual kingdom. Just as the kingdom of darkness is present and real, so the kingdom that He brings is real and present and spiritual. Something that is gradually being manifest. Something that is progressively coming. And it, it is as he builds his church around the world, but it's also in your own life. It is progressively coming. Everyone who comes under the lordship of Christ, Satan's rule is destroyed and his kingdom comes. Gerhardus Voss writing says this, that the kingdom comes when the gospel is spread. When hearts are changed, when sin and error are overcome, when righteousness is cultivated, and a living communion with God is established or reestablished. This is the coming of the kingdom. And spiritual in this way, where the gospel goes forth and hearts are changed to love and trust the King Jesus, and sin and error then are overcome by coming under His power and reign, and righteousness then is cultivated in a communion with God. We walk with Him and we know Him and love Him in His kingdom. Thy kingdom come. I'm going to give a couple of quick then, uh, just list applications for you, you know, for, in the interest of time, a number of ways that this should make a difference for us. There are dozens, and let me give you half a dozen. Um, first of all is this, have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? It's a very definitive act. It's a very, it comes at a point in time where you very consciously, not just believe in what your parents believed, or not just because you go to church, or some of us even have gone to church for 30 years, and we, in a sense, believe the different things appear, but have never actually bowed the knee to King Jesus. Right? Turning, turning, believing, trusting, embracing Jesus as Lord and King, the one, our Redeemer and Savior, and coming under His Lordship to live for Him not for ourselves. If you've never done it, I would invite you this morning to bow the knee to King Jesus. He will redeem you, pay your debt, forgive your sins, and give you a destiny in light. And if you have bowed the knee to King Jesus, then as this passage and the whole thing that Paul's been talking about since he started this letter is to, is to live as a delivered one. Right? To live worthy of the call that we have received. To live worthy of our King. To come under His power. To be delivered out of the power of darkness and to no longer serve it. This change of dominion has occurred. It is absolute. And, and, and it is real. It is present and it is real. And to live in it daily. To wrap your imagination around it. To use your imagination to not imagine things that aren't real, but to imagine real things. 
when I'm not with my wife, to imagine her face as I miss her, you know, or our family, you know, we can imagine, and there is a kingdom that is real. It's to, to imagine is to use the, the eyes of your heart to see things that are real but not visible, right? And to live in this imagination, to live in this understanding that we live in His kingdom, under His Lordship, and we have been delivered out of darkness, 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5 says, You are children of the light, children of the day. Wrap your mind and your heart in this, your imagination of this. You are a child of the light of the day. We are not children of the darkness anymore. Right? That this would dominate our thinking and our living as we, as we walk morning by morning to embrace the light. The best sense of that. Right? We don't put our faith in Him once back there, but every day we put our faith in Christ, our trust in Him, right? and we embrace who we are as children of the light. Romans 6, 11 to 14 says it this way, Consider yourselves dead to sin, right? dead to the darkness, delivered from the darkness, not a part of it anymore, not a servant of it anymore. Consider yourself, reckon yourself, know yourself. Think like this. Consider yourself dead to your sin, but alive to God. Think like that every day, in every battle, in every struggle, in everything that you're dealing with. Think of yourself this way, delivered, snatched, dead to sin and darkness, and alive unto God in Christ. And don't let sin therefore reign. Have dominion, have power. Don't let it have power in your body. You obey its passions, but present your members him. Do not present your members then to sin and to serve unrighteousness, but present your members to God. For sin will have no dominion over you. Do you believe it? It has no dominion, no power, no right, no authority over you. Consider yourself dead to it, and alive unto God, and free to present your instruments, hands, feet, and all else to Him for His purposes. Remember that this is a kingdom that's already and not yet. That means it's already come, it's present, and it's real, but it's not yet fully here. That it has come, but it's coming. It's begun, but it's not complete. It is growing. It's advancing. You know, as it it covers the globe even now, it doesn't have national boundaries, but it's a kingdom that is growing. It's already, but it's not yet. And we wrestle with the not yet. Hebrews 2, he says this, and now putting everything in subjection to him, that is in subjection to King Jesus, giving him the lordship, the reign, the dominion over all things. He put everything under subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. He is the undisputed king. But at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection. And that's hard. We don't see everything in in, in subjection, but we do see him. He was a little while made lower than the angels. He was incarnate. He took on flesh and bone for us that he might die our death and pay our penalty. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Jesus reigns as king. We see that he is king with the eyes of our hearts and the trust of our faith. And we live in the tension of the already and yet it's not yet. And even though sin has no dominion over us, it's often that we say sin, it, 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 it remains, but it does not reign. It remains, and we struggle with sin in, in, in this in-between time of the already and not yet where sin remains, but it does not reign. And we seek more and more by His grace to live under His power. 
And we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we are His ambassadors representing the kingdom. And He's making His appeal through us as we become the messengers of the good news of the present real spiritual reign of Christ who is able to redeem and to forgive. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer, do we not? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, first in my heart and in my soul, in the life of my church, and in the world as we share that gospel. And so finally we do what the text tells us to do, which is give thanks to the Father, the one who qualifies when we could not qualify ourselves. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do give you our thanks and our praise. We thank you that you have done for us what we could not do, that you have redeemed, that you have paid the debt in the death of your Son, and you have forgiven our sins, and you have transferred us out from the dominion and the authority of darkness and sin, and you have transferred us into your own kingdom. Oh, would you fill our hearts and our minds with the light of your kingdom, the light of your presence, the light of your power and your glory. Would you strip from us all darkness and let your light so shine in the inner world of our soul that darkness is destroyed and driven out and we are filled more and more with the knowledge and the love of you as we walk with you in your kingdom day by day. In the name of Jesus we ask, amen.